Welcome to the Sliding Doors podcast, a series of long-form conversations with guests about the ideas and experiences that have changed their lives. These sliding doors of opportunity are rare, but worth finding. And this podcast is a roadmap, sort of like squiggles on the back of a napkin. Rough, but hopefully useful. So join us, because we think it could be a fun ride. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Sliding Doors podcast. I am Rohan. And I'm Sushil. And we are both freelancers. So I thought today it would be fun if I ask Sushil a bunch of questions about the challenges of freelancing, and hopefully we get an entertaining conversation from that. What yeah. say, Sushil? Sounds good. Let's get started. Cool. So first off, just so... Everyone has context, and so do I. After you, after college, you did uh, uh, graphic design, right? What, what was the course? Masscom. I did visual communication in Loyola College, Chennai. Right. So straight out of college, what did you do? Straight out of college, I wanted to learn about three um, D modeling, three D graphics. Okay. So I joined a company um, called Mattermost Urgent, where I was supposed to learn. Well, I, I joined as an uh, kind of as an intern, not exactly an intern, but I joined in order to learn what they were doing. Um, okay. But I didn't do that. Instead, <laughs> <laughs> instead, I kind of. Um, did all their print design because that's what I had done in um, in my internship at Ogilvy and Mehta. Right. So I did all uh, a whole bunch of posters and um, uh, point of sale material and various below the line stuff. Okay. Um, it also did a bit of graphic design for web and for 3D, but the 3D work was almost non-existent. I still stayed there for about a year and a half. Um, okay. It was a good experience. What did you do straight out of college? Yeah, so I uh, finished my master's in sociology from the Madras University. Okay. And I loved the subject, but I didn't want to get into academics or teaching. Okay. And so my classmate, Kripa, Kripa GEO, I think you've met her, right? Yeah. Yeah, so she's a, well, she, she was a huge, hugely into journalism and she's now written books and stuff. So at the time, she put me in touch with Frappe, that coffee table magazine. Sure. And uh, I enjoyed writing. So they had one issue a month Wait, hang and on a I second. would go so, and. Huh? Do you know Amit? Amit, was he a photographer? No, he was the designer of Frappe. Oh, no, 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 no. I only knew Hema Seduraman. She right. was the, right. one, the one who ran the show. Yeah, I've met her a couple of times. Mm. Do you know that so, I, did, I did a photograph uh, for the cover of Frappe? Seriously? Yeah. Wow. Uh, Vijay Amritraj and his sons. Hey, I think I remember seeing that cover. Yeah, so that was photographed by my dad <laughs> and me. It would have been about this. We're about the same age. So, yeah, it, it would overlap. Mm hmm. Uh, it would make sense that I would see that cover. Yeah, so I finished with Frappe after a couple of months, like it must have been six months or something. When was this? And then the same classmate of mine, sorry? 
when when did you uh, 2009 i'm guessing cuz college finished in 2008 okay so it was fun i mean i was going around interviewing uh, well local celebrities and covering uh, book launches or if uh, if i think indian terrain launched a new fashion line so i was there covering that cool so it was fun. yeah yeah it was good fun but the pay wasn't very good and i didn't see myself doing that as a career okay so then kripa the same girl put me in touch with swami and servercraft right which is how we cross paths yes. right yes yes so how how do we get to swami from your from where you left off okay so for me that was a slightly longer journey okay um, i i left matamos urgent in 2005 i was helping my dad for a couple of months and then i moved to bangalore um i was there for about 11 months oh wow so i moved to bangalore for 11 months and i worked at a company called stirred creative okay um that was around the time that did uh, digital photography came into the scene um professionally uh, i think right. a few people had been using digital cameras for a while it was getting right. more uh, prevalent but digital cameras for professional photography were expensive monsters at that point of time right um and they were only they they were more useful for professional use in their medium format avatars which meant that they were costing around 8 to 10 lakhs per camera sometimes oh, not wow. even for the camera just for the back the digital back right and images were only about 8 megapixel 12 megapixel even though they were that expensive um mm. so when cameras like the fuji fine pix s2 pro came out with 6 megapixel high quality images then um they were more accessible to commoner photographers um, okay not advertising professionals but just you know people who do slightly below super high pro work but these cameras also became available for rent at that time so you would find uh, people who were shooting in studios for um um artist portfolios portraits headshots um family portraits all of that kind of stuff people were using these cameras for that Right. and that made it um more accessible and that was around the time that um my dad was also having to transition from film to digital okay so i got a call back from bangalore saying we need someone over here to help with all of this stuff and i'm the it genius in the house doesn't say much but yeah <laughs> son so the son is wanted back. back i had to leave my career right leave my advertising career which was in a way a relief because i think i think the um workload over there was very stressful for me 
So in a way, I was relieved to come back and help with the photography business at home. Right. Um, and I think that's when, uh, soon after that, 2007 is when, um, 2006 is when I came back, 2007 is when I started my company called Colors Alive. Mm, um, for yes. A few months I had started uh, freelancing as a graphic designer, as a print graphic designer, uh, doing logos and brochures, things like that. Basically, because I had to fill time, I was not only doing um, photography. Right. So in that spare time, I did freelance work. And uh, I met Swami and the Pixelcraft gang um, first. Um, as, uh, as 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 uh, photographers, actually, Pixelcraft hmm. needed uh, some photography done, and they had their office quite close. <coughs> they um, were introduced to us through a photographer called Vincent, and okay. he had used our studio uh, because we were renting out the studio. He had used the studio for a couple of shoots for Pixelcraft. And then um, I think Pixelcraft found out that we were also doing photography and uh, we were a little cheaper than Vincent. Okay. So we <laughs> did helps, some shoots always. for Pixelcraft. Okay. Yeah, but then it also, you know, it created tensions later on in life with Vincent and Pixelcraft. Huh. Um, because Vincent... Um, I think he then said stump, some stuff about us, which was probably untrue to Pixelcraft, and Pixelcraft stopped working with us even for the studio. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, there are always these um, conflicts of interest that we need to be clear about. When we have a photographer come into um, our studio um, these days, we take pains not to appear to steal their client or steal their okay. client. And, I mean, appear to steal their client, meaning uh, we do we have a studied disinterest in their client. So right. we do not um, speak to their client at all. Um, we do not. Very often, the client will come to us and ask for our phone numbers and stuff. And we will say, no, um, uh, we've been hired by this photographer, so please speak to him, get our number from them if you want it. Ah, uh, right, right. And if they do come back to us directly, we speak to the photographer in question, tell them that they have come to us, what, you, what would you like us to do? Hmm. Um, which is probably not required. Um, but we do that. Anyway, that's a, a, a very big sidetrack from where we were going. So um, around 2008, one of my clients asked me to um, make a website for this uh, fast food chain called Mary Brown. Oh, yes. I remember Mary Brown. So I had, um, I had made websites 
for college projects like 2003. But 2007-2008 is when I uh, realized that there was a revolution in website design. Right. And that was because people were not using tables for design anymore and I hated using tables. Okay. People were using something called semantic HTML markup and CSS. Right. So that means that if you look at the HTML document, it was no longer a mass of weird tables and text in places that did not make sense. Meaning very often in the past, you would have had one image and then something else, uh, maybe a headline and then a, a sidebar piece of sidebar text right and then um many uh lines down you would have the actual body content of that page now right. with html with semantic html markup um the html became more like a document so you could actually read um the document headlines body content all of that in place mm. and sidebar content was usually at the f- at the bottom of the page um and all of that was brought together with um magical code called css um which is which stands for cascading style sheets now that intrigued me a lot so i learned how to use um semantic markup and CSS in the span of one and a half or two weeks. Wow. And I built this website from scratch in another one week. So that was a huge achievement. I was thrilled by it. And it was Mary Brown's official website. Seriously? (laughs) Yeah. Wait, but okay. That's all across Chennai? All across India, yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. That's a so, huge accomplishment. It was. You basically and taught yourself all of this and set up their website for all across India. Wow. Yes. <laughs> so you can you can see that um that was a big deal even though Mary Brown wasn't my client directly. So right. the job came to me through uh through an agency and I was okay. their freelance contractor basically. Okay. Um, I got it because that guy thought my design was good. And right. um, he, he knew that I did not know how to build a website, but I was teaching myself. So he was very aware of um, what I was capable of and what um, the, the actual reality of the scenario. But mm. he still asked me to do it. And I was happy to have delivered. There were a few glitches initially, but we fixed that. Right. Um, so that's when my interest in web design began. And I slowly, um, things changed from there on. I, I started experimenting with WordPress. Um, there were other... content management platforms that I tried out. Like I think one was called, um, I, I don't remember the names right now, actually. <laughs> I tried about okay. four or five different platforms. Right. Um, so WordPress and then uh, Drupal, Joomla, are the ones that I really worked on. 
Um, so then I started working on rather slightly larger clients and uh, um, Swami came to me for some website design at that point because through our interactions he found out that oh oh yeah okay so there's another thing also and that is that uh, some of the uh, pixel craft people found out that we were doing photography classes uh, my dad and I so they joined one of our classes um, to learn how to do photography oh wow okay so Swami um, a couple of his friends um, all of them joined our classes and we had good fun um, I don't know if you know Aryan I've heard of Aryan yeah so he was I've a heard a lot about Aryan He's yeah a copywriter so he was also right. one of the people okay so yeah um, that's that's how we connected with Swami and right that's a long story yeah but that's uh, where we first met I remember we worked on a website together and you were using Drupal right yeah. at yeah. that point you were experimenting with Drupal yeah 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 that was fun so you've been a freelancer most of your life right i mean most of your your uh, for most of your career my career yes so i stopped hmm. being employed in 2006 right and I, wow that means so that's, i've uh, been employed only for about 14 years, years. okay mine's even shorter i was with servercraft for one and a half two years max okay <laughs> so why so why huh. why did you stop uh working for someone else because i found well what was happening with servercraft is they they were a small company Mm-hmm. And they needed to expand in order to make things. I mean, uh, I, yeah, I don't know about that. I, I, I'm assuming to break even or to make a profit. Right. So they started taking on more and more clients and more work. Okay. And I was finding that I was churning out work, but not really learning much. Because okay. the deadline was so crazy. I didn't have time to stop and reflect or even, I remember sending out, like Swami would give me work, I'd send it to him mm-hmm. and he would have to do way more uh, editing for uh, for like, what do you call? Uh, yeah, lots of proofreading, proofreading issues because right. I was working way faster than I was comfortable. Okay. So at one point I realized that this is heading in a, in a direction that wouldn't be good for me. Uh-huh. Because one thing that I've always, I didn't know this at the time, but I do now. I need to feel like I'm learning and growing with each project. Okay. I mean, that's a, that's a luxury. I, I see that's a luxury, but it's important for me. So for that, I need to have space between projects. Because then you finish the project, you hand it in, and then you get to like give it a couple of days. So you, for me, that makes a big difference. If I write something, yeah, I need a couple of days to put some space between me and that work, and then I can go back and and see it for what it is, like other people see it. Okay, that makes so sense. So it helps to have the freedom to do all of that. So go back later. Then, if there's stuff you want to read up on. 
you get a chance to read up on those things. So these luxuries I didn't have working with Servercraft because Most people I mean, don't. yeah, and, yeah, you don't have that. And that's probably the difference between working in a company which has uh, tight deadlines and right. the opportunity to work at your own pace where you see your work not as work but more art right do you see uh, yourself as producing something that is uh crafted and i think i don't know if no it definitely is an art but there's a lot of crafting involved when i say it definitely is an art i say that because it's not original like what's the difference between art and craft right craft takes a lot of skill okay but you're doing something that someone else has already done it's an idea or a practice sure that isn't new so in that sense what i do is certainly not art but there's a skill to it so for example even with content marketing mm-hmm. you're there's a whole bunch of small things you need to do. So you need to get people to look at the article in the first place. And when they're reading it, you need to have interesting, I mean, add value. But at the same time, it needs to be something they can digest quickly because no one's going to spend a long time looking at a post they came across on Google. Right. As opposed to you buying a magazine and settling down to read that magazine, right? Right. So you'll have to think of, the, cl- the the person who's reading your content, what's the context? Where are they reading it? Why are they reading it? So are they, is flowery language going to help? And if not, what what's your style going to be? So there's a whole bunch of these small things you need to think about. So in that sense, there's a lot of crafting involved. Okay. Um, so I just realized that um, although we have started off explaining what um uh, about our first jobs you haven't said what exactly you do ha <laughs> yes so i've done many things so i guess with uh, frappe it was sort of journalistic writing with swami it was content writing okay and uh, so we were basically working on websites and brochures okay primarily that's what i remember a bunch of websites and, and a few brochures okay and I now, I guess I'm doing, and we can get into that, what, uh, what Seth Godin calls a mistake, which is I'm a sort of, I take whatever project comes along. Uh-huh. So I've, I've helped edit a, a nonfiction book written by this doctor, like a solid book. She put in a lot of research okay. to write about the, inst- the hospital that she works at and which, I mean, my parents worked at. So I grew up next to this hospital. Right. So she did a, a lot of research, traveled, looked at archives, things like that, and put together this book. And I helped her uh, edit and proofread it. I was co-editor on that book. Nice. I've also helped people write, for example, papers. They needed a paper to, to attend a conference. I helped ghostwrite that paper. But most of the work I do now is content marketing. Okay. Which uh, involves, well, I mean, for people who are listening who don't know, it's basically the latest form of advertising. So most people, when we see an uh, advertisement, we just switch off because we know we're being sold something. But the way content marketing works is that if you have a service or product, uh, you that say, okay, say I have a client who has who's created 
a product. For example, the client I work with, I'm sure they, they won't mind me using their example because they want their name out there. So it's a company called Goldfinch and they've invented, they've created an app, uh, uh, some software that helps lawyers do something called e-discovery. Basically, it's a, this software is a place where they can dump a bunch of their files and search these files. So one way of getting the word out would be to come up with an, an ad for people to see, right? Either on the internet or on TV or radio or whatever. Yeah. It's one way of doing it. The other way would be to try and get, what you're trying to do is get your target audience's attention, right? So in this case, these are lawyers and specifically lawyers in small and mid-sized firms. So with content marketing, what we do is say, okay, what are these lawyers searching for on the internet? Because Google is where we spend a lot of our time. So right. if you can figure out the stuff that the lawyers want to learn about, and you start writing about that, then they will find you. They'll find your article. And the content marketer's job is to write an article that's useful for whoever finds it, so you're saving them time, but at the same time, connected to the product or service you're selling so that you can plug your product or service. So in so a way, you're teaching lawyers? Uh, <laughs> I guess you could say that. But let's make this concrete. Say a lawyer initially attacked was let's see what lawyers are googling so one thing was if you're in a small law firm you're trying to make your firm larger because you want more clients you want to make a profit sure. so we we wrote an article 10 ways to make your to, to grow your law firm so what this involves on a practical level is to just google a shitload of articles to figure out how this would work like how do lawyers do this but so what you're case, doing um, how do you know that your source is from a lawyer who has grown his law firm and not that's somebody who's a challenge. content marketer? Yes, that's the challenge. And in fact, now, if most things you Google, especially as a content marketer, you can tell the marketing articles. So I think the space is getting saturated. But in its purest form, with a content marketer who's, who's dedicated to the craft, yeah. you're looking for articles that you can trust, that make sense, and that add value to whoever's reading your article. Sure. So all we're doing is saving the reader time. So it's nothing the reader couldn't have found, but it's a lot of work that the reader now doesn't have to do. Right. So you're curating content from different uh, places yes. over the web? Yes. Yes, you are. That's a very useful service. Yeah. Exactly. And if you do your job well, yeah. and the reader, and this is the key, see, the reader has to find the information useful. So yeah. you can't fake this. Sure. They either like your work or they don't. And if they like it, if they like your article, they're going to say, okay, this made sense. What else? Who wrote this? And what else can I learn from them? Sure. So you'd write this article about how to grow your law firm. And then at the end, you'd plug this e-discovery software. The connection being this particular software helps lawyers do something that other types of software can do but those software that software costs way more okay so in that sense you're helping smaller law firms compete with larger law firms right so seth godin uh talks about this well not this in particular i think it was started with email marketing but this is permission marketing so 
they are finding you. You're not shoving your message in their face. Right. If I'm watching a YouTube video and an ad comes in my face, I don't want that ad. Yeah. Whereas with content marketing, they're, they're saying, I want this information and they're coming to you. Right. And they get to choose whether they click on that link that leads to your product or service. So in that sense, they're in charge. Right. But there is a dark side to all of this, which I think we've talked about, which is paid news, right? So right. With, with, with news agencies, there's an ethical dilemma of people are coming for unbiased sort of information. But if it's a question of how to... Well, let's make it simple. Um, you have a problem with ants at home and someone has the, they, they're, they're exterminators. Yeah. Now, if you Google how to get rid of ants, it doesn't really matter whether that content is, is from a reputable source or not. Does it work or does it not work? That's sure. all that matters. Sure. So that's very simple. But when you get to more complicated stuff, for example, say your client has a, 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 a psychology practice. Uh-huh. And someone's Googling how to deal with my child's depression. Right. These stakes are higher now, right? Much. Like, like this, here you need actual information. You can't, you can't just Google stuff and assume that's going to be good enough. Yeah. But a lot of content marketing is that. So there's, there, there's a grayness which I now see in, in content marketing. Right. So I think this is where, and I'd love to, because this is an important topic, choosing your clients. Okay. Right? That becomes an issue. How, how have you dealt with that? How do you choose your clients? Um, it's a good question. I'm, and I'm not really sure that I have a concrete answer. What's a no-no for you? Like, do you have red flags when it comes to dealing with clients? Well, my business is much easier in the sense that I am not talking to other people on behalf of any of my clients. I am simply taking photographs for a client. Now, how those photographs are used, I have very little control over. Um, right. And the subjects of the photographs are usually not controversial. So it's usually a product that is being um, photographed. Or if I'm making a video, yes, in that case, I am probably talking to other people. But then it's more um, advertising content. It is usually a corporate profile. It is a product um, detailer where we talk about the specs of the product. Right. It is maybe an explainer video where we're explaining how... Um, how an online service works or right. how an online product works. So I don't really have much of this ethical dilemma that mm. I deal with on a daily basis. Right. Um, on the other hand, I do have to vet a client to see whether they are a good fit. 
And I think that's partially what you're talking about. But as a person who is the voice of your client, you have the ethics to think about. Um, about um, how much of what you say is going to represent the client's point of view and you have to be truthful and accurate at the same time, right? Right. Um, Does that product very true. If it's very if true. it's bullshit, then I mean I can write a great article about what it should be, but is it is it that true? And as a lawyer, you don't really uh, uh, sorry as um, uh, as you are not a lawyer. You don't really have a way to check that the product does what it claims it does. Right. In this In this case, yeah. I, uh, so the, the, I know these guys. Yeah. Like the, he was a senior from school. So in that sense, I, I, so this is where for me, the reason I ask this is, again, trusting the client. Like a couple of things I wanted to explore. One is trusting the client. And as you said, that's probably more important with the kind of work I do. Yeah. But the other thing, and I think this may be useful for people who are just out of college and if, they, if they're freelancing. The other thing is some clients are more of a headache than they're worth, right? Sure. That's, that's what I meant when I mean vetting the client and seeing whether mm. they're uh, people that you want to work with. Um, definitely. That aspect, that is more of a business decision and a personal decision. Um, than an ethical decision. Um, and that is part of the various decisions that we need to take as uh, freelancers on a daily basis. I would say that more than freelancing, I see myself as a business. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. And these are business decisions that we need to take on a daily basis. Right. Can you think of, it may be useful, can you think of any nightmare clients? Obviously, you don't name them, but nightmare clients and what were some of the, if you, well, whether you spotted them or not, what were some of the red flags? Like, what were things, looking back at it now, I that can told say you that, that they were? I can say that in many cases where um, the result was that I stopped working with the client, it wasn't always only the client's fault. Right. Um, I see it as a learning process um, hmm. where my process was not um, up to spec, meaning right. I probably did some things wrong. For example, I might have um, not stated the process clearly or um, I might not have stated the time frame clearly as part of the initial talk. So, mm. yes, there are clients who are a pain um, and that you spot in your initial meetings when you sp start speaking to them and when there are people who are too demanding, they demand a lot of your time and effort and do not... Um, put up any of their resources up front. So right. when there's an inequality in the um, initial requirements, 
where they say, okay, give me this quote, give me another quote, I want a little more, which is fine. When you're initially speaking to clients, I think you should be a little flexible. Um, but then, you know, when they go beyond that and they start asking you for stuff that should be deliverables, but they mm -hmm. ask, hey, I want to check, will this work? Can you show right. me a sample of this? Yes. You know, when that starts happening, um, and I think, I think in many cases, it's just a type of personality that the client right. might have, might have. Um, I found that sometimes I've caved to that because of the potential work that might happen in the future. Mm. But usually it doesn't work well because I'm not a good match with that kind of a client. Right. Um, I'm sure that there are others who will be able to deliver go the goods for that kind of a client, but it's not me. Yeah, yeah, so I agree. I think we need to match up well with clients. I find that um, I work well with clients with a similar background as me because I understand mm. them a little better. Right. Um, there is no gap in communication in terms of the way we speak, the way we understand each other, that helps a lot. Um, background of um, uh, business uh, culture, that plays an important role. If a person is a little more professional, then I find that it's easier to work with them. Um, and I think that's only a cultural thing because it's not really whether the client is good or bad. It's just they have a different work culture. Mm, That's right. fine. That's fine. Um, there are people who service that kind of clients. Uh, and I think that kind of a match is very important. Making, making sure that you and your client match, e match each other is important for a long-standing relationship. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. For so, me, some of these... Sorry, I'm just going to cut in between. So for me, um, I would say that very often um, it is more often a case of me not understanding the client properly. Um, and therefore, it becomes a learning experience. Um, instead of me saying that the client was at fault all the time. Right. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. There that are makes people sense. that we can't work with. And I think it's just a matter of matching. Uh, yeah, I think the personality match is important. Yeah, their approach as well. Like recent, in fact, just yesterday, I, I had to turn a client away because after a couple of calls, uh -huh. it was clear that he didn't quite know what he wanted. Yes. So he had come because he needed me to help write content for an app that he was developing. Okay. But so he, he shared the wireframe of the app. Okay. But he said, so I want you to write stuff that's catchy and clear, but catchy, which was fair enough. Okay. But then after 45 minutes of talking to him, he couldn't like, he couldn't get specific about where, which features, which pages he wanted text worked on. 
right and uh, what what is good when he says good and catchy what does he mean like can you give me some examples yeah so i spent my time trying to get this out of him yeah and i think it's a decent process cuz most of my other clients no all of my other clients i've never had an issue okay. like once you that i mean you know right that initial client sit down yeah. where it's our job to try and understand what the client wants yeah like really understand mm-hmm. um then maybe come up with a brief so that we both on the same page and then you start up that just that just didn't work with this guy so i think and so in that case um, i have had clients like that and um very often the conversation will run into more than an hour and mm. it's probably a matter of the client not having enough experience with working with an agency or a copywriter right right so um very often you'll find somebody who has been an employee um in a in another company decide that they want to start up a new business and they have probably been at a manager level handling people who are uh running the date i mean doing the day to day business of the work but have not been um exposed to advertising and marketing functions right so they know in general what an ad should do it should be catchy it should be um it should speak to their audience but they don't know how to refine their audience they don't know why they should refine their their audience mm. so in that case um it's a matter of education and right. there is only so much that you can do before the person becomes a client right yeah and uh, even after they are a client um while it is your responsibility to educate the client a bit you cannot become that teacher right so in that case um yes i have encountered people um uh, who are like this and i have found that it becomes tiresome because you need to then um you have to do their work plus educate them a bit about how the entire how uh, certain things fit into the bigger picture like right why should you be speaking to a certain target audience and not just everybody right i've come across that a few times so okay. um um like uh, you you'll find that when you come across a designer who's not really um i've i've come across a clothing designer who hasn't really done any marketing and you ask them who's your target audience they like all females between 35 to 45 you know right which is right. which seems like a decent enough target audience um to start with but you need a lot more detail because you know what kind of styling is this clothing for is this um um a person who is um educated is it ethnic or western is it office work is it somebody you need to basically right. paint a picture to... of who that person is yes is this a person who's been educated in college um are they working now or are they at home is this uh you know is it for official work or is it you know uh when they're going out and meeting their friends 
all of that has to come into play and very often they don't understand that this is important um, because mm. your communication has to suit the exact target demographic otherwise yeah. you will be spending money in places that you don't need to with a message that is very ambiguous right um you know because it will be mixed up yeah so yeah absolutely that's just one aspect of it there's so much more that needs to go in there like color selection um choice of words choice of uh, imagery um uh accessories all of this um all mm. of it plays a big role in how um the end result works and right. if your client is not aware of how all of these tie together it becomes very difficult to do your job and that becomes more expensive to you because time equals money the time you right. spend educating your client um is money out of your pocket right yeah so i think how do you one vet of the clients uh, for me, it's just vibes. It's just good vibes or not. That first meeting. I mean, if, if I was to be more logical about it, it is how organized are they because I need a client. It, it, okay, it depends on the project. If there's a lot of work involved, then I would definitely take the time out to do the education and to, you know, work with the client. But if it's just something small... Yeah. It won't make sense for me to invest all that time to try and understand the project and educate the client. Sure. But even if a person that is, doesn't pay off. is not educated, um, it makes sense when you know that the client is willing to open up and listen to you. Right? Yes. Yes. The, uh, the, the, the idea that I've been sort of playing with based on a lot of what I've been listening to with Seth Godin was, see, this, this thing, I think it's come up before in our conversations. Uh -huh. If they pay you a lot, then you owe them like even better work because they're paying you so much. Like you better be worth it, that sort of thing, right? Yeah. The, the, the one way of approaching it would be you do your work. Yeah. So whether you're paid a lot or not, you're doing the best you can. Now the question is to find clients who can appreciate that. For sure. So that's, the, that's one way of looking at it. As opposed to whoever comes along, I need the work and so I'm going to do it. Which is in some sense very logical. And but that I think seems... reflects in your pricing, right? Right. Exactly. So if your exactly. work is good then you wouldn't have to cater to everybody who comes along and you yes. will be able to price yourself higher. Right. So um, you could look at it as whether you're good or not. And then based on whether you're good, you can price yourself uh, in the right category. If you price right. yourself high and take on every single client that comes along, then you're probably... Uh, no, I, I don't think you would be able to um, take every single client who comes along because not everybody would be okay with your price. Mm. Right? Right. Yeah. I think... Yeah, I think one of the reasons why 
this is so important, at least for me, and I, I'd be curious to see whether it's you, is that I sort of, I get onto the team, the, the, I'm on my client's side when I take on the project. Like we are sure. on the same team. Sure. I change it from you to we. Mm -hmm. So more than just doing business with this person, I, I need to know that I'm helping Okay, a friend would be too corny, but someone whose work I care about. And I think this came up in our discussions. Remember I was telling you about that multinational I worked with. I won't, I won't, I won't say the name. So why don't you just tell our audience instead of right. referring so, to our conversation? <laughs> there was, uh, I was asked to help write content for a bunch of websites for a multinational. Right. The pay was good, and mm -hmm. I knew the man, the manager in charge was was someone I knew well. So I took that because of these two things. Because the ma the manager is important because whoever he is the client basically. So right. he's the point of contact rather. So I need to know that person is trustworthy. Right. So the project was eye opening and useful because I got to see how a multinational works and I got to you know best practices when in, in 2020 what are the or this was 2019 so what are the best practices right. when it comes to creating a website so that was good right but the one thing that bothered me was you're just cut off from your client uh -huh. so this company so say i'm working in i've been contracted so it, for you this company working for a product that the company itself was delivering but um, as an uh, where the company where the multinational was an agency kind of right right I okay. had I didn't know the client or their product my the the person I worked for didn't know the client or the product meaning di rather didn't know the client had never met the client the person I worked with's boss had never met the client either so you are cut off from the end product you're given some briefs, you create the work, you send it back, and you're done. Right. With freelancing, one of the things I like is I get to interact with the client, and there's a face here. I'm helping someone. Mm -hmm. I'm making a difference in their life. And I can then see who they're helping. And, you know, there's a connectedness with the work that for me is important. I'm curious, is... Are you similar or is there some parallel with you? It's always um, nice to see your work put to use and making a difference. That is, um, I think that's a given for anybody. Um, whereas, I, I do understand also the need to connect with the client directly um, because you know it's it's that game of passing the message right if someone's passing you a message from somebody else right um, there's always something lost in translation especially if you can't ask the person to clarify what they mean immediately right so it uh, depends on the quality of the end client's communication and your ability to understand it. Um, 
And in that sense, I think, yes, it is very important for me to be able to speak to the end client directly. Right. Um, but does, does it make a difference for me to be able to see the impact on their day-to-day -day lives and their business? Not so much, no. Okay. I don't think I get that involved in um, how the client, um, whether my work makes a difference. I, I, I love to see um, the end use where my phot photography or video work goes into their marketing and um, is put to use. Absolutely. Mm, right. But um, I, oh, that's especially nice when you see someone take an image that you've created and use it in a design that looks really classy, mm, really good. Right. That is especially rewarding. Right. But um, I don't, I don't need, I don't have that need to know whether it really changed their business. Right. This so is it's for most good clients, work. not all it's, my clients. It's you produce good work and you feel that work is being used well. That's what yeah. gives you satisfaction, right? That that does give me satisfaction. But again, I should say that what I've just now said applies to most of my clients. Okay. There are some clients who I have a long-term relationship with for maybe five, um, five, seven years. And with these clients, it's very different. Okay. Um, I am involved. I, 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 am, I am involved in the sense that I love to learn what they're doing. Um, I speak to them about what they plan f for the next few years or months. And I also see what I can do on my side to help improve um, their reach or um, in the sense... Oh, hang on a sec. So I... Oh, is that car? Can you hear that car honking? I could hear the honking, yes. Okay. So I do whatever I can on my side to help them with strategies on media and um, video and all of that. So right. I uh, try to provide them with new avenues to reach out to their audience As okay this especially works if it's an audience that i resonate with okay so yeah it's not for not every audience that i can do this for right but some so the way i see it is i'm not talking um I, i'm talking on my behalf to their client uh, i mean on my client's behalf to their clients right right so it goes back to kind of what you were talking about, uh, providing value to the end audience, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, for me, yeah, for me, one of the things that matter, I think also because I'm being hired to help oh, them. Sorry, one sec. Right. Yeah, sorry. Uh, you're being hired to help them. I'm being hired to help sell the product. Yes. So sales, whether the product's doing well matters to me, right? Like 
earlier on, it was it was a situation of, yeah, I write, you want me to write an article? I write an article. Here you go. And it's a great right. article, but that's it. Now, so I'm more... So, do you link your remuneration with their increase in sales? No, I don't. I haven't yet got to that stage yet. Is it something that you are looking towards? Uh, yeah, if I could figure out how to do that, because you need to have a sort of you need to, to have a grasp of business, right? To figure out how much is the product going to make? How, what are the chances of you I don't think actually making uh, that difference? That part r- really um, matters as much as having the technical know-how to be able to um, uh, track um, right. sales that are linked with yes. reading your article. Yeah, yeah. So that's where analytics... Analytics is a big thing now, right? Figuring out the impact of whatever whatever you put out there yes and it's very complex also the technical aspect of it is right 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 so one thing i wanted to ask which we sort of touched on earlier i uh, i talked about the issue of being a jack of all trades right which as a freelancer there's a temptation to just take on whatever comes your way because i mean it's money and it's experience right the f- I think, as I understand it, the older you get, it pays to start specializing so that you become the go-to guy or girl in your area. So yeah. we left w- when we left your journey, at what point did we leave it when you, you were working as a, you were designing websites, right? With Servercraft? Yeah. And now you've moved on, right? You don't do that anymore. Servercraft. Yeah, so it's a longer story. Um, the the story behind um, me choosing this um, specialization. Yeah, choosing photography and videography. Uh, uh, say video production, not not videography. Video production versus um, doing websites has a bigger story. Okay, and that's because. Um, I actually, uh, I had hired a number of people over the years, um, full-time employees, which is why I see myself more as a business and not a freelance, um, not myself as a freelancer. Um, But what happened is I had a very high turnaround rate. Right. And um, it also meant that I was training people, paying to train people. And then uh, not being able to get enough value or in some cases, any value out of that. Okay. So it was not making financial sense. It wasn't making much sense in my life either because I'm pretty much a designer and explorer at heart. I like to do new things and um, maintaining websites was... um, was I could say soul shattering mm, because I can it was imagine horrible. it got monotonous. Monotonous is one thing, but I just hate doing the same thing over and over again. First three times is fine, right? But doing it beyond that is just a pain. Right. I know what you mean. And I know what you mean. I I can't do repetitious work beyond a certain point. Uh, because I, I love to explore new avenues and as long as I'm doing something in a different way, trying to optimize the way I'm doing it or trying to add new features or making it, making it look better, um, that's fine. 
Right. But when I'm just trying to do the same thing um, again and again, it it's not my not my calling. So I hired people to do that, and that wasn't working out either. So eventually, um, I moved away from that. In 2015, I dropped it entirely in favor of doing photography and making videos. Right. And I find that there are certain components um, that are just as mind-numbing in this field. Okay. Um, such as photo retouching in um, e-commerce images. Right. Um, video editing where there is a fixed format, there's no innovation. Right. Um, so, yeah, so those things I am now tending to outsource to other freelancers who enjoy it. Right, yeah. How, how do you find these freelancers? I just put out ads. Okay. Sorry, where? Um, OLX. Okay. Uh, Facebook Marketplace. Okay. Facebook Jobs. Okay. Actually, not Facebook Marketplace, Facebook Facebook Jobs. Right. Because I have a Facebook page for Colors Alive. Right. And I just add a job. Okay. And I get tons of unrelated inquiries. Wow. Okay. So so even that didn't work? Hiring these people didn't work? Um, well, um, it didn't work because I was looking for a with looking for people with specific skills for people who are able to edit video in DaVinci Resolve. And there aren't many people who are able to do that. Right. So um, when, when I do start looking for people again, I will be looking at people who can edit in uh, Premiere Pro. Okay. And that should make my search a little easier. Okay. So, so what is it about videography and photography that, that interests you? What's the variety you get from it? I, I somehow seem to have found a few clients um, who are in the bicycling niche. Mm. So I've done uh, for, for these uh, various companies, I've done um, photographs of their products. I have made videos of their products um, in the studio. So I'm, when I say photographs of their products, I mean in, the stu in a studio. Oh, okay. Um, so that is studio product photography. Right. Then I've done reviews for other clients. Right. Um, so bicycle reviews where um, we're outdoors and on the roads. Um, I get to sit behind a... Uh, someone on a scooter or a motorbike and I'm <laughs> sitting backwards and <laughs> leaning outwards and using a gimbal. Right. So there's a variety of different skills that I need to develop and uh, different um, ability to understand what I'm shooting in different context, contexts. So I've done that. I've done uh, videos for a bicycling team um, I've done videos, uh, tutorial videos where people are explaining how to fix, uh, diagnose uh, issues with a bicycle. Um, I've done product presentations. I've shot accessories for bicycles. 
um, that is tabletop photography. So just in that one segment of business, bicycles, I've done many different types of um, products. I mean, my deliverables have been uh, very wide ranging. Um, with other clients, I've done stuff like interviews. I've done uh, corporate films. You know, so it's every time it's a new challenge. Right. When you go to an industry and you find that there's um, smoke billowing out of a furnace instead of into a chimney, I need to then figure out how to shoot it so that it doesn't look bad, mm. even though it is bad. Right, um, right. It, and it's not because the company is not fully unethical. It's just that their uh, chimney is broken down and is being repaired. Right. You know? Yeah. So uh, they don't have any time. There's a deadline for the video to be shot. And um, I need to uh, figure out how to shoot it in the best way possible. So there's... Um, I prefer to work with those challenges. Right. And uh, I, I think there's a long way to go there. There's, there's a lot more to be learned. Right. What's, what's next for you? Do you know? No, I don't. Right. No, I, I, I was hoping <laughs> you didn't. I've fields I don't either. three times. <laughs> I started off in print um, advertising and design. Right. I moved to web design and development. And from there, I've moved back into um, photography and video. Right. Video, I, I thought, in fact, in fact, I did not choose video production in college because I was certain that I would never go into video production. <laughs> I did help my friends make, um, uh, you know, with, with their projects. So I was quite adept and knowledgeable about the entire process. Um, I had edited videos for them in college, but I did not want to get into that field, man. <laughs> right. And here I am. Yeah, all these years later. But I... again, it's, I'm not in the industry. I really do not understand how to work with people from the industry. Mm. Um, I am, in this sense, a freelancer. I am a one-stop shop. I do everything right from scripting to uh, storyboarding if necessary to b working with the clients understanding their business and their requirements and then you know from that uh, developing a short list and shooting actually shooting and coming back and downloading all the files and editing and delivering the final result uh, right you know yeah so there is a limit to what projects i can take on because i'm a one-stop i'm i am a single person doing this entire thing i'm not i don't always have just me running uh, behind the scenes i do take on crew as and when required and that's pretty much what everybody does um but at the same time it's not the same as um you know the how the actual industry works so in that sense i think i'm i am quite a bit of a freelancer also 
Right. Yeah. I was hoping you had a clear idea of your future. No, I don't. So I don't. We, I don't know so because I wouldn't in have the next to talk five about. Years, I might be. <laughs> no, but uh, the, the yes. Um, I think that I am more at home with um, photography and filmmaking than I am with website design. Right. Website design still does interest me. It remains a passion, but. Um, more for my own use than for any commercial projects. Right. Um, I do think that photography, I mean, within photography itself, I have a number of interests I uh, that I have not explored as yet. So I, I there's, there is, um, um, there's a whole lot of stuff. There's VR, um, photography and videography to be, explored there's um there's, oh my gosh there's so much there's <laughs> night photography there's stock photography and that's the that's one of the things i find fascinating about you you're always exploring always I, I, reading I think, up about I think stuff most people are, right no 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 there many people maybe but many people also learn what they need to do to get by and then they're happy treading water which is fine sure, but sure. it's different right it's different to the kind of uh stuff that i've observed you do in that sense i'm also the same it's usually my learning is not so much around uh work but just like you okay. i love to learn new things new ideas new ways of doing stuff uh, I, I guess that's one thing that both of and us that get from... us to this podcast, right? Yes. <laughs> that's, that's the whole purpose of this podcast. Absolutely. We are talking about stuff that we are learning and um, stuff that we want to learn about. So hopefully we'll be able to bring in people that um, know more about these topics that right. we're trying to explore. Yeah. Absolutely. And we'll be able to talk to them. Yeah. Before we uh, sign off, we've got to address the big thing, the coronavirus. <laughs> Is the world going to end, Sushil? Um, no, but um, it is going to make... Um, I, I think the coronavirus is going to make people more aware of um, what they're touching. Right. And I think... This year and the next year, we'll see um, a drastic reduction in just uh, flu-related deaths. Right. Meaning um, general, uh, the normal flu, not uh, coronavirus-specific. That's um, an interesting point. Yeah. As our sense of hygiene, or at least the precautions we take precautions, increase. Yeah. yeah. That's think, a good point. Um, yeah, but there are also going to be huge business challenges. Um, for example, if I get called out to a factory, um, will I go? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Good point. For example, back in 2006, I was called out to do a shoot at a resort um, where the resort wanted us, uh, the resort was hosting. 6,000 employees from the Nokia factory and they wanted to show their facilities 
um, in their ability to handle all of these people. Um, in today's context, I would not go. I mean, I think it's still early days in India, in Chennai. Right. Um, where, where it's still safe probably to go out and uh, be in that kind of a crowd. But maybe in a, uh, in a couple of weeks or in a month, I would not do it. Yeah. And that yeah. means that I lose revenue on a job that I might have taken. Right. Made quite a bit of money on. But it means that I will have to find other ways. I will have to compromise. Um, I, I I'm, will not. I mean, I, I don't think I will. But I might have to. Right. You know, uh, six months down the line. I was talking to a friend of mine in Boston and she was saying uh, a bunch of companies there because the, the, the virus has hit Boston. The, uh, mm-hmm. A bunch of companies that are asking their employees to work from home. And that's yeah. something that's going to happen here. Like I have a friend in HR and he was talking about how his company seems to be gearing up for that to get people to work from yeah. home here in Chennai. Yeah, so, I, I, know, I know that um, people in Bombay and Bombay's just first uh, had their first case reported recently. Uh, but for a couple of weeks now, I know companies in Bombay have had um, what they call incident response teams um, set up and um, they have people from different disciplines, different departments, uh, part of it. And they have set up a game plan if um, they find out that their city is being hit hard and if their office has anybody who is suspected to have a um, uh, to, to be infected, so it is good. It's I think we are probably not overreacting because this will also serve as a, a testing ground for future outbreaks. Right. Exactly. Proving ground, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? Because the next time something like this happens, there will already be some systems in place and there will be more systems that need to go in. Yeah. Makes sense, man. We shall... uh, Let's see how this goes. I like how there's always a a silver lining to these things. um, That we can actually grow from this and and become better. Yeah. um, I think every experience is um, meant to be taken um, in that context. Right. Whether it's good or bad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Shall we sign off? Where can people find you? Well, they can find me in my house because I'm not going out. There's a coronavirus (laughs) on the prowl. Okay. Online? (laughs) On Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) On Twitter, they can find me at Sushil underscore C. On Instagram, I'm Sushil02. That's S-U-S-H-E-E-L-02. And my company is called Colors Alive. So it's colorsalive.com. C-O-L-O-U-R-S-A-L-I-V-E.com. What about you, Rohan? How will they find you? You will... It's very tough to find me. (laughs) For work-related stuff, rohantaryan.com. R-O-H-A-N-T-H-A-R-Y-A-N. And on Instagram, I do post from time to time. I'm Rohan Does Simple. 
Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah. You should you should tell people that your Instagram is kind of dedicated to uh, a topic, right? Yes, simple living, simple living, and uh, meditation, slowing down, that sort of stuff. So yeah, if you're interested, check me out there. And uh, till next time, this is Rohan, and this is nobody. <laughs> That's the shield. And this is us signing off. So take care.